This is Communio Sanctorum, the history of the Christian Church, Season 2. Welcome back to Communio Sanctorum, History of the Christian Church. We ended our summary and overview narrative of church history after 150 episodes. We took a few months break and are back at it again with more episodes, which aim to fill in the massive gaps that we left before. This time, we'll do series that go into detail on specific moments, movements, people, places, and other topics. The title of this episode is The First Centuries, Part 1. Ask almost anyone with at least a vague awareness of the early years of Christianity, and they will likely tell you that it was a time of intense persecution. Ask how many believers were put to death, and the number will range from tens of thousands to a few million. From stories, movies, and paintings of the era, many have the mental image of a mass of defenseless Christians dressed in white, huddled on an arena floor, surrounded by hungry lions. The stands are packed with spectators shouting for their blood. But that image, common as it may be, is rather misleading. Did it happen? Well, undoubtedly. But it wasn't the ubiquitous scene that many assume. Before the dawn of the 3rd century, official imperial attempts to eradicate Christianity were largely unorganized and lukewarm. Roman emperors were rarely the terror to the faith that popular literature has made them. I say rarely because there were some notable exceptions prior to the 3rd century, and then after that, things changed dramatically. Some emperors seemed to delight in tormenting Jesus' followers. Ending Christianity in the most brutal manner seems to have been a major focus for some of them. Why did Rome persecute Christians? And why is it the popular concept of this time that it was an era of martyrs? It's best to get at this by backing up a bit to consider Rome's attitude towards religion. And how are we to do that, pray tell? Because attitudes toward religion vary from person to person and time to time. Among the ancients, Romans, Greeks, Jews, Parthian, or whatever, there were those who were devout, and there were the profane, And then there was a whole spread of the shades of piety from one end of the religious spectrum to the other. What we're considering here is the basic Roman civic approach to religion. It might surprise the modern student to learn that political leaders of Rome served a religious function that was part and parcel of their political task. Their civic duties included cultic rituals. Roman religion was heavily invested in public ceremonies and sacrifices. Personally held religious beliefs weren't as important as most modern religions regard them. What was important, and preeminently so, was the possession of pietas. Pietas was religious duty and meant honoring the sacred Roman traditions in the accepted way. The English word piety is derived from this word pietas, But piety wasn't an option for any Roman who desired to climb the political ranks. It was an absolute essential and something to be demonstrated publicly. Pietas was the distinguishing virtue of Rome's founding hero, Aeneas, who is given the epithet of pious by Virgil in the Aeneid. 
Cicero elevated Pietas to the place that Christians would later assign to agape. It was the duty a good Roman was to show to the gods and his fellow man, and by doing so, ensured the safety and prosperity of the state. Romans of the 2nd century BC to the 4th century AD saw themselves as owing a debt of gratitude to their ancestors who embodied the virtues that they treasured. It seems that our time isn't the only one that looks to a past golden age of yesteryear when all the women were strong and all the men were good-looking. Romans assigned themselves a custodial role in preserving the traditions of their ancestors. And not just theirs, they expanded that custody over the traditions of those that they had conquered. So though they despised the Jewish religion for its seeming irreligious monotheism and refusal to cast Yahweh's form, because it was an ancient belief, it came under their protection, as did several other Eastern faiths that were too divergent from that of the Greeks and the Romans to allow for inclusion in the Roman pantheon. But Christianity was different. It was originally regarded by Rome as a Jewish reform movement, something Jewish leaders would have to deal with within their esoteric and opaque system. What worried Rome was the rapidity by which this new faith grew. That, and it defied some of Rome's most cherished ideas about how religion ought to be conducted. Rome was all about the public display of ritual. Religion was a community thing. Christians, on the other hand, well, they were secretive. They conducted their services in private and were reluctant to talk publicly about what they did behind closed doors. Now, that reluctance owed to the wild and salacious rumors that were being spread by their critics. Calumny began early for Christians. In some places, Jewish opponents, jealous at the success of Christian evangelism, twisted aspects of the Christian message into accusations that they then whispered into the ears of officials. Things like Christians practice cannibalism because of the Lord's table. It was said that they were incestuous because they held what were called love feasts where they referred to each other as brother and sister. And most damning was the pagan perception that Christians were in reality practical atheists. Now that charge is incomprehensible to modern believers contending with the likes of Dawkins and Harris and their new atheist compatriots. But in the early centuries, Christians were regarded by their pagan neighbors as atheists precisely because they believed in only one God rather than a plethora. Though believers tried to dispel these damning misconceptions, they lived on. As has been said, a lie travels halfway around the world before the truth has put its shoes on. So Christians sequestered themselves behind closed doors and met in secret to conduct their clandestine meetings. The popular Roman mentality toward religion was that it needed to be practiced in public as an expression of the community's devotion to the gods, who then reward this public piety with divine favor. It was relatively easy for them to accept the face of those that they conquered since they already believed in a multiplicity of deities. I mean, what matter if we just add a few more? That policy of tolerance for the religions of their conquests was sorely tried when it came to the Jews. Though many Romans despised the monotheism of Judaism, toleration was begrudgingly given simply on the basis of the antiquity of the Jewish faith. 
that toleration was strained to the breaking point under the reign of the mad emperor Caligula, who demanded to be worshipped as a god. Then, after the First Jewish-Roman War of AD 66-73, through 73, the Jews were allowed to practice their religion, but only so long as they paid a new tax, the Fiscus Judaicus, and that was on top of the exorbitant taxes that had sparked their revolt in the first place. There's debate among historians over whether the Roman government simply saw Christianity as a sect of Judaism prior to the Emperor Nerva's modification of the Fiscus Judaicus in 96. You see, from that point on, Jews had to pay while the Christians didn't. So that seems to suggest an official distinction being made between the two groups. A measure of the Roman disdain for Christianity came from the belief that it was bad for society. In the third century, the Neoplatonist philosopher Porphyry labeled Jesus' followers as impious and antisocial atheists. Their impiety was located not in what we'd call traditional morality, but in their refusal to engage in the public religious rituals that were understood by the pagan world as a way to gain the favor of the gods. Once Christians were distinguished from Jews, the faith was no longer grandfathered in to reluctant acceptance. No, it became a superstitio. For Romans, superstition had a dangerous connotation, far more so than in today's parlance. It meant religious practices not just different from the norm, they were corrosive to society. Superstition was a set of beliefs that, if embraced, dehumanized people. If enough people embraced them and were detached from their humanitas, society would unravel an ancient spiritual zombie apocalypse. Roman squelching of such dangerous superstitions happened in 428 BC when an unnamed group was eradicated for having caused what was thought a drought. In 186 BC, the Romans moved against the initiates of the cult of Bacchus when they got unruly. And of course, there's the famous Roman campaign against the Druids in Britain. The intensity of Christian persecution depended upon how dangerous they were deemed by the local official who was responsible for conducting such oversight. Now, to be frank, Christian beliefs didn't really endear them to many officials. Now, let's think about it. They, first of all, worshipped a convicted criminal. Second, they refused to swear by the emperor's genius. Third, they railed against Roman depravity in their writings. And fourth, and fourth, they conducted their suspicious services in private. In his Apologeticus, which was addressed to the magistrates of Carthage in the summer of 197 AD, the early church father Tertullian remarked, quote, we have the reputation of living aloof from the crowds, unquote. One of the more frequent words used to describe Christians in the New Testament is hagios, translated saints, literally holy ones. But the root of the word means to be different, set apart. If something is holy, it's different from other things. The difference lies in its purpose. It's for God, dedicated exclusively to him, so a temple is holy because it's different from all other buildings. The Sabbath is holy because it's dedicated to God. Christians are saints because they belong to God. Jesus' followers felt this distinction keenly. 
They even embraced it, knowing that it set them at odds with their pagan neighbors. But it's human nature to regard those who are different with suspicion. So the more seriously early Christians took their faith, the more hostility they faced. Simply by living in obedience to Jesus, Christians condemned paganism. Christians didn't run around wagging their fingers or their tongues in condemnation of unbelievers, nor did they advocate and promote a self-righteous superiority. It's just that the Christian ethic revealed the shabbiness of a pagan life. Now, if that's all the Christians were guilty of, though, persecution would not have broken out against them in such fury. What sparked it was their vehement rejection of the pagan gods. The ancient world had deities for everything. Uh, there was a goddess for sowing, another for reaping. There was a god for clear skies, another for rain. Mountains had gods, as did trees and rivers and valleys. For Christians, most of who had at one time worshipped these deities, they had become a fiction. And it would be one thing to go quietly about their business with that view, you know, keeping your religion to yourself. But pagans wouldn't let them, because every meal began by pouring out a few drops of wine as an offering to the pagan gods. Feasts and parties were held in a temple after a sacrifice, the invitation to dine at the table of some god. It was an ancient version of Chuck E. Cheese, but instead of ignoring the dated mechanical rodent, you had to worship it before you'd be allowed to eat your pizza. Christians simply couldn't attend these events, and when he or she turned down the invitation, well, they were reviled as being rude and antisocial. There were other events and gatherings that Christians avoided because they considered them inherently immoral. They weren't alone in that assessment. Many moral pagans objected to them as well. Gladiatorial contests are an example. In theaters across the empire, Romans made prisoners and slaves fight to the death for the amusement and entertainment of the crowd. Refusal to practice idolatry led to financial difficulties. What was a mason to do if, as a believer, he refused to work stones for a pagan temple, or a tailor balked at making a robe for a heathen priest, or a baker refused to make a cake for a... Yeah, never mind. Tertullian forbade Christians teaching school because it meant using books with stories about the gods. Now, as I share that little piece of history, let's be cognizant of the almost certain reality that Tertullian's position was in all likelihood not something that all believers and not necessarily even all leaders agreed with. Truth be told, his may have been a minority opinion. The problem is we just don't have much evidence of what the rest of the church held regarding whether or not Christians could teach school. There was no tirade of tweets one February in the 3rd century over what occupations Christians could and couldn't fill. It wasn't a topic that people were blogging on. There was no Facebook page devoted to it. All we have is Tertullian's remark. Maybe his pastoral peers disagreed and sent him pointed emails about it. Forgive the anachronism. I trust you get my point. And the larger point for us to glean is that during a time of widespread and aggressive paganism that required Christians to go along to get along, many believers found themselves stepping away from public and civil life because in the contest for remaining faithful with Jesus, their conscience demanded it. Everywhere that Christians turned, their lives and their faith were on display because the gospel introduced a revolutionary new attitude toward life. 
This was exhibited most clearly in the realms of sex, slaves, and children. The Church of the Modern Era has often endured scorn for its old-fashioned views on the sanctity of marriage and marital physical intimacy. That isn't a criticism that early Christians faced, at least from most moral philosophers. On the contrary, ancient Roman moral pundits lamented the abysmal sexual immorality of their time. Raising the sanctity of marriage, along with attitudes toward marital fidelity, was one of the Emperor Augustus's pet projects. Christianity, infused as it was with a biblical view of marriage and sex, regarded the body as the temple of the Holy Spirit, with marriage as a picture of the church's union with Christ. Couples who lived out the gospel in their homes exhibited a quality of life that pagans were longing for, but it did mark them as radically different, and we all know how the masses react to that. Slavery was another matter altogether, and it was here that Christianity was regarded as a dangerous force because it attributed dignity to all people regardless of status or state. It's reported that when Christians met for their distinctive services, masters and their slaves would sometimes shed the distinctions that marked their lives just before and after the service. Greco-Roman culture might regard slaves as mere living tools, as Plato described them, but Christians esteemed slaves as of equal value with the free. In a society stratified by endless causes for division, the followers of Jesus bore a shocking disregard for those differences. But with the horrors of periodic slave uprisings still fresh in the collective memory, well, outsiders came to regard the Christian message as dangerously subversive to the social order. The attitude seemed to be, hey, look, it's great that the Christians see all people as equal, yet are able to maintain the traditional roles that our legal system has imposed. But we know that at some point, if more people go in for this Christian thing, the slaves will reach a critical mass and will rebel again. Last time they did, I lost two friends. I don't want to have to go through that again. The sanctity of human life that framed the core of the Christian attitude towards slaves and slavery applied also to children, and in particular to infants. Unlike their pagan neighbors, Christians refused to leave their unwanted or physically distressed children in some out-of-the-way place to die of exposure, or to be carried off by traffickers who would invest a little food now for the payoff of selling them or using them later. In fact, not only did Christians refrain from this barbaric practice, they often rescued such exposed infants and raised them as their own, which, of course, put an additional financial burden on already strained incomes. We'll halt this episode here and pick it up in the next, and begin by taking a look at the first systematic persecution under the Emperor Nero in AD 64. 